The Bible reading tonight is from Psalm 69, which you'll find on page 412 of your Bibles. For the director of music to the tune of the lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those who wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will, be, this will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns or, and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there.
Friends, just before we have the second Bible reading, I just want to let you know just a few things. I'm not preaching tonight. Uh, Paul's not here, so he can't preach tonight. Steve's down the back, so he's not preaching tonight. We've got a guest preacher tonight. I'm going to introduce you to him right now. This is Tim Clemens. Um, Tim's a lot taller than I am. Uh, Tim, uh, Tim is a student minister with us here at Church by the Bridge, and he is serving our church over at Lavender Bay with me on a Sunday night. He's preaching tonight. I thought we'd just get to know him really briefly uh, before he preaches us. Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself, particularly your family. Okay. Um, there you go. My name is Tim. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Emma. She's a primary school teacher. We live in Narrenburn, just over the road. Uh, I like surfing. Uh, yes, no children just yet. Great. And, and when you're not a student minister at mm-hmm. Lavender Bay and not here, what do you do? Uh, I'm studying at Bible college, so last year Simon and I were at college together. He was in fourth year more college. I was in first year last year. So I'm in the second year of a four-year degree studying the Bible. You get a little bit shorter every year you go to more college. It's great. Um, You went in taller than me. (laughs) um, Final question. Um, So you're at more college. Mm -hmm. uh, You're married to Emma. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do after college? What's sort of God laying on your heart as to what you might want to do? At the moment... Uh, Emma, my wife and I are interested in church planting, so that's actually one of the reasons I met Paul Dale uh, a few years ago at a church planting conference. I came to him and said, looks like you've done an interesting thing, can I watch what you're doing? Uh, He said, actually, next year, so this is a few years ago, we're going to start a new congregation in Lavender Bay. You should come and watch it happen. So that's what I did. Uh, I've been watching, trying to learn from Paul and now Simon. We'll see if that's where God puts us in the future, but at the moment, that's what we're excited and interested in. Sure. Thanks, mate. We'll hear from you in a second. Uh, turn your Bibles open, friends, to page 751, uh, John chapter 2. Uh, John chapter 2. This is the passage that uh, Tim will be opening up for us in just a few moments. As we come to verse 12, uh, Jesus has just performed an amazing miracle. He's just turned water into wine, showing that he is... Um, God himself, God can only do that. And we move on to verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They, there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all the, out all from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believe the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Well, thanks for having me with you tonight. We're going to open up that passage in a moment. Um, get out of the way. 
Before we do, why don't you let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures that the Holy Spirit has written. Um, Lord, please speak to us tonight. Speak through me. May everything that I say be true to your word. May you give us ears to hear what you have to say to us tonight. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Start with the question, how do you connect? How do you connect? Think about the internet for a moment. When was the last time you heard this noise? Doesn't that just send shivers down your spine? The old dial-up modem, it was horrible. Uh, I don't know how you'd watch YouTube on that these days. It was just horrible. Those days are gone. Uh, These days, we're in the world of 3G and 4G internet. It's fast, it's powerful, it's everywhere. See, there was a time in the past where if you wanted to go online, you actually had to go to the modem. I mean, how old school is that? You had to go to the modem... You couldn't connect using anything but a computer and you even had to use a cord from the modem and plug it into your computer because the modem was the connection point between you and the internet. Those days are over and today we are in the world of 3G and 4G internet. And so today location is actually a non-issue. It doesn't matter where you are. You can connect at home, you can connect at work, you can connect in the car, you can connect in the snow, in the bush, whilst you're on your boat out in the ocean. doesn't matter. You can connect anywhere. And what's more, the way you connect also is limitless. You can connect on your PDF, so on your P- PDA, you can connect on your e-reader, on your tablet, on your phone, your computer. The options are limitless. And more than that, everyone can connect. And so my wife can connect, I can connect, the whole family can connect because we're no longer limited by that central hub. Today, the way you connect is entirely up to you. Now, what I want to suggest tonight is actually that this is a common trend that we'll find in our culture and it's not just in the world of the internet because what you might start to perceive in our culture is this increasing desire, an increasing desire to personalise the way that we connect, to tailor-make the way that we connect with God. You see, in the ancient world, um, there was basically the, the common way of viewing God. It was almost like it was a dial-up God. And so there was one way and one way only to connect with God, and it was through the temple. You see this in a number of religions, the most pro- The most uh, significant, though, is ancient Judaism. In Judaism, God was connected to through the temple. And so it didn't matter if you lived in Capernaum, like we see Jesus in today's passage, he comes from Capernaum, or if you lived in Kirribilli. It didn't matter if you were in Lystra or Lavender Bay, where our church is over the road. You still had to go to Jerusalem in order to connect with God. That's entirely different to the way that we view God and connecting with God today. We live in this 3G, 4G type world. And so our culture tells us that actually you can connect with God any way you want. So some people say, you know what, I connect with God through nature. Uh, When I'm walking through the bush or when I'm on top of a mountain or when I'm in the surf, that is where I feel like I'm really connecting with God. 
Or some people say, no, it's through meditation. And so I just like to sit there, let my mind go blank and let my spirit rise. That is how I feel like I can connect with God. Or some people say, no, it's through music. It's in music that, my, that I, I hear a song. It stirs my emotions. That is how I connect with God. There's also the other ideas. It's this new age spirituality or it's through your Buddhism or through my Hinduism. Our culture is increasingly wanting to personalize the way that we connect with God. The question that our passage is going to answer for us tonight is which one of these is correct? Is it this dial-up modem type of God? Is it this 3G, 4G type of God? How do you connect? What does it look like to worship in a way that connects with God? That's the passage. Our, sorry, that's the question our, our passage is going to answer for us. There's going to be two points today. We're going to split this passage up into two points. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you should have them open. Uh, I'm going to work through this passage. Two points today. First one, Jesus wants everyone to worship. Second one, Jesus enables everyone to worship. Number one, Jesus wants everyone to worship. Number two, Jesus enables everyone to worship. So, jump in at number one. Verse 12 sets the scene for us. Basically, Jesus, sorry, John here explains Jesus has just come, as Simon said, from doing a miracle in Cana of Galilee. He turns water into wine. And then he goes from Cana, stays in Capernaum for a few days, and whilst then he leaves Capernaum, take a look at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that's significant. The Passover is the time that he goes. Basically each year there was an annual festival in which the Jews celebrated an event from the Old Testament where God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. If you don't know the backstory, that's okay because more important to understanding the passage is what actually happens at the time when you celebrate Passover. You see, at Passover every year, people would flock to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, if they considered themselves a serious Jew. So I think at the end of the month, in August, I don't know when the Olympics are on, it's coming up, I know that. Uh, Everyone who considers them a serious sportsman, like if you're really into sport, you're going to London. People will flock there from the Americas, from Asia, from Africa, from Australia, Everyone will flock to London for the Olympics. It's like that with Passover. At the time of Passover, everybody who considers themselves a serious Jew flocks to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is one of those, of course, and so verse 14 tells us what he finds when he gets there. Verse 14. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now that bit, unless you understand what's going on, it doesn't really make sense. You see, the reason that everyone flocks to Jerusalem at Passover time is to make a sacrifice. The thing is, if you're coming from Rome, you don't really want to take your cow all the way from Rome. That's going to be a little bit inconvenient for you. If you're coming from Egypt, you, would, you don't want to take your sheep 
It's just going to get in the way. If you're coming from one of the surrounding suburbs, some of the surrounding towns, you don't want to pick up your caged bird and take it to the temple. It's much more convenient if when you get there, you can just buy your sacrifice there. So that's why this little temple marketplace has been set up, to make it more convenient for everyone to come from the nations. We also learn that there are money changes there. That's because because everyone's coming from the nations, they're all bringing their foreign money. And so they need a travel ex there so that you can exchange and get the right money to buy your sacrifice. That's the scene. That's why there's this little market going on. The action starts in verse 15. Jesus looks around. He sees this scene and he gets angry. doesn't say it there, but you can tell he's angry. And so what he does is he makes a cord, sorry, a whip out of cords, gets them together, and then he just starts whipping, whipping, whipping. Not people, presumably, but animals. Why? Well, because that's how you move sheep. That's how you move cows. You need to whip them. And so basically it's this picture of Jesus mustering animals and people, their owners, out of the temple. Now, this is going to cause a serious distraction. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be a scene that everyone will notice because the temple courts, they're massive. And the the image is that Jesus is whipping and almost, you presume, with the other hand, he's turning over money tables as he goes, just creating this racket. And then verse 16 says that he actually specifically says to those who sold doves, get these out of here presumably because whipping a caged bird is not all that effective. They actually have to pick up the cages and walk out. Then he says, verse 16, How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And then John, in verse 17, says that the disciples have been watching this whole thing and they're reminded of a passage in Psalm 69 which is a psalm that King David writes, where David says, zeal for your house consumes me. And then the disciples watching Jesus, watching this this event unfold, say, ah, here is a man full of zeal. The question that I want to spend a few moments with you now, trying to figure out, is what is Jesus zealous for? What's the motivation behind this whole scene? Why does Jesus do this? You might say, well, Tim, read the passage. It's obvious. It says, zeal for my father's house. It's obvious. It's, it's for the temple. That's why he's zealous. I say, in light of what Jesus is about to say about destroying the temple, that's probably not what he's referring to. In fact, Jesus is not zealous for the temple. Jesus is zealous for what the temple represents. So, uh, we all know those movies. Uh, It's uh, a girl, she's 18, it's her birthday, it's the morning and she's sitting at the breakfast table and their mum and dad come along and they're all happy and they've got a little present for her. It's in the shape of a box and so they give it to the girl. And well, she's all excited and so she unwraps the present, opens the box and then she just goes ballistic. Oh my gosh, oh, thank you. You look inside, so she looks inside, the camera zooms in and it's a key. The reason she's excited is not because it's a key. She's excited because of what the key represents. She's just got a car. Jesus is not zealous for the temple in and of itself. 
He is zealous for what the temple represents. Because the temple was the place that you went to connect with God. The temple is the place you went to pray. The temple is the place you went to worship. The temple is the place you went to get your sins forgiven. The thing is, that's where the marketplace is is happening. You see, the temple in Jerusalem, this is slightly simplistic, but basically on the outside of the temple, you had this massive courtyard. And so it's like this huge thing, maybe a few football fields wide. It's huge. And then in the centre, you had the temple. So it's a little bit like us. We have the property of church by the bridge, and so that includes outside. It's the, the hub, the hall, the toilet blocks. And then in the centre, in this building, we've got the temple. Now, the reason that this is significant is because it's only Jewish men that are allowed to go into the temple which means if you're a woman or you're a convert to Judaism from some other nation, then you actually had to do church, you actually had to worship in the temple courts. But that is where the marketplace is set up. And so it would almost be, this situation is almost like we're trying to do church in here, but in the meantime there's cows and there's sheep and there's birds in the middle. And so we're singing, Jesus prayed it all, and there's moo. It's slightly distracting. It, you can't concentrate. You can't do anything. In fact, you might as well not even turn up, which is the problem. Jesus is passionate. He's zealous. He wants everyone to worship. But right here, this marketplace is causing people to stop. It's putting barriers in their way. And so the reason that Jesus turns over the tables, the reason that Jesus ushers them out, is because he's trying to remove every barrier, every obstacle, every excuse that's going to stop people worshipping God. As you look at that, it made me wonder, what would get Jesus frustrated today? Are there obstacles, are there barriers that we have put up that stop people coming and joining us here to connect with God. Maybe it's because they don't look like us or they don't talk like us or they don't earn the same amount of money as us or they don't work at the same place as us or they don't live where we do. Have we, like the Jews here, turned Christianity into this cultural stronghold where only the insider is allowed in? That's the sort of behavior, that's the sort of thing that gets Jesus angry. He cleanses the temple here because he wants everyone to worship, not just people that look like you and I. That's point number one. Jesus wants everyone to worship. We're going to take a look at point number two. Point number two, Jesus enables everyone to worship. If you've got your Bibles, we're in verse 18. Jesus enables everyone to worship. Verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They've just seen what Jesus has done. They want to know where he gets his authority to do it. Jesus comes back in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now that's significant. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
But for the moment, just take note of verse 20. The Jews are confused. They don't understand what Jesus has said. They say, it took us 46 years to build this thing. How are you going to raise it in three days? Then John gives us this little editorial note. It's in verses 21 and 22, and it's really important. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture, Psalm 69, that we read out before, and the words that Jesus had spoken, which is verse 19. In other words, what, Tom, sorry, what John is saying here is that at the time when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, he didn't really get what was going on. Just like the Jews, he thought he was talking about the temple. But then, actually, once he steps back, once he sees the whole story, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it clicks for him. And he understands verse 19. So what we need to do now is try and figure out how does the death and resurrection of Jesus help us to understand verse 19, Jesus' claim. You may be well aware of this, but it's helpful just to go over it. In the Old Testament, God's people had been told, if you sin, if you break my law, if you go against what I want, God says, there will be consequences. Like a just judge, God can't just let wrongdoing go unpunished. There must be consequences, and God says the punishment for sin is death. However, he also, because he's a loving God, a kind God, says that he provides a substitute. And so this whole system gets established called the sacrificial system. Basically, the situation is that Jews in the Old Testament would actually go and grab an animal. Let's say you grab a lamb, for example. You take the lamb. If you'd sinned, you would then go and find the priest. So you go to the priest, you tell him you want to make a sacrifice, and then you'd go together to the altar. It's in the temple. You'd pick this lamb up, You'd put it on the altar and then you'd put your hand on its head. And then over the lamb, you would confess your sins. And so maybe you'd say, God, I've cheated. God, I've lied. God, I've stolen. God, I've committed adultery. Whatever it was, you'd you'd confessed over this animal. Almost as though your confession, your sins were being transferred onto the animal. And then with your hand there, and in recognition that this animal was about to get what you deserved, he'd get a knife, he'd slit its throat, and it would die. Now, as a result of this, the worshipper, the sacrificer, is spared because the animal has died in its place. They could go away forgiven. Everything is okay. That is the way the Old Testament sacrificial system works thing is, you get to the New Testament and you discover that there's a serious problem with this whole system. And that is, in the book of, of Hebrews, the author says it is impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, the Old Testament sacrificial system didn't work. But the New Testament also explains something else, and that is that all of these sacrifices, all of these dead animals, these thousands of animals that were killed, were actually all pointing to something else. They are pointing to a greater sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice 
that was still to come. And so in the New Testament, Jesus is described as that once-for-all sacrifice. He is, as John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the Passover sacrifice. He is described through his death on the cross as the Lamb that takes away our sins. So, John gets to the end. He understands all this. And that helps him understand verse 19. So we've got to figure out, okay, how does that help us? Well, we'll split verse 19 into two sections. First, Jesus says, destroy this temple. Jesus here, he's being clever. He's actually got a double meaning in this sentence. John tells us when he says destroy the temple, he's referring to his body. The thing is, when the Jews do destroy Jesus' body by nailing it to a cross they actually do destroy the temple because in doing so, Jesus' death actually accomplishes the purpose for which the temple was originally set up, which is the forgiveness of sins. I'll say it again because it's actually really important. When the Jews destroy the body of Jesus on the cross, they actually do destroy the temple Because in doing that, Jesus' death accomplishes the purpose for which the sacrificial system, the temple, was set up. The forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus' death makes the temple obsolete. That's the first section. He says, destroy this temple. Next he says, and I will raise it again in three days. Now it's interesting. Jesus doesn't doesn't just destroy the temple and leave it that way. We don't, go from, uh, we don't go from a dial-up God to all of a sudden a 3G, 4G type system. Because no God, sorry, Jesus destroys one and raises another. And so with the resurrection of Jesus, a new temple is established. Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, not only replaces, but also fulfills the Old Testament temple. And so today... If you want your sins forgiven, you don't go to the temple, you go to Jesus. Today, if you want to connect with God, you don't go to the temple in Jerusalem, you go to Jesus. This is where our culture has completely misunderstood the situation. You see, we said before, people are trying to increasingly personalise the way that they connect with God. Our culture says you cannot, you cannot stipulate how people are supposed to connect with God. They can do it however they want. You cannot tell us that there's only one way to connect with God. Actually, to say that is to misunderstand it. Jesus doesn't abolish the temple. Jesus replaces the temple. It's just that the temple is no longer in a place. It's in a person. It's no longer in Jerusalem It's now in Jesus. Jesus is the one way to connect with God. He's still only the one way. Which means you don't connect with God through nature. You don't connect with God through meditation. You don't connect with God through music. You don't connect with God through Islam, Buddhism or Hinduism. There is one way to connect with God and that's Jesus. Now don't get me wrong... 
I'm not saying that things like nature or things like music can't actually inspire us, uh, move us to worship. Uh, this last week, I've spent the time, some time down at Port Hacking. It's a beautiful youth works campsite down there. The grass is gorgeous. It's green. The water is crystal blue. The sun was blazing. There have been times this last week where I've looked out and I've just been moved to worship. But I go to Jesus and I worship God through Jesus. It's not me connecting with God through my experience of nature. There's still only one way to connect with Jesus. Sorry, to connect with God. Before we finish, I just want to explain why I've called this point Jesus enables everyone to worship. It's because if there was still an Old Testament earthly temple, everyone in this room, if we wanted to connect with God, we don't come here, we don't go anywhere, we have to go to Jerusalem. If the temple was still set up, I've never been to Jerusalem, I don't know if you have, but that would mean that I still haven't properly connected with God. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can actually right here in Kirribilli, as Australians, as wherever you've come from, not Jews, we can connect with God right here, right now, through the new temple, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus enables everyone to worship. He cleanses the temple and then he dies to replace the temple. That's what enables us to worship God. As I finish, I want to leave you with two thoughts. First one, can I encourage you to connect with God through Jesus? If you'd say you're someone who feels connected to God, if you say you feel like God, uh, God has a place in your life, and yet Jesus has no part to play, can I say that I don't know what you are connected to, but it can't be God? because there is one way to connect with God, and that's Jesus. There's a verse that Christians love to kind of throw around and pull out out of context. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, it actually works in this context. There is only one way to God. If you want to meet God, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to see God, if you want to connect with God, it only happens through Jesus. That's the first thing I want to leave you with. The second is can I encourage you to be full of zeal for worship? We worship a God. We worship a Savior. We worship Jesus. And he was zealous for worship. He wanted to remove every barrier, every obstacle, every excuse, everything that would stop people coming and connecting with God. If we see things, obstacles, barriers, maybe it's our own feeling of insecurity, maybe it's our own fears, we worship a God that wants to remove those so that people can worship him. We need to examine our own life. Are there things that we're doing, things that we're saying, the way that we do things here that are stopping people from doing that? Jesus, in his death and resurrection, well, sorry, he cleanses the te temple because he wants everyone to worship. In his death and resurrection, he enables everyone to worship. And so we as his people have that message to take to the world. Why don't you let me pray? Father God, we thank you for Jesus and this episode that we've read about tonight. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that we don't anymore have to go to a temple in Jerusalem to meet with God, but we can actually now, right here in Kirribilli, pray and connect with God now. We can get our sins forgiven, not in the temple, but by you as you died on the cross. We can connect with you as we sing now. Lord, we do it in your name. Lord, we pray in your name. And that's what gives us full confidence that we are connecting with you, God, the Lord, the creator, and the maker of everything. In Jesus' name, the one who connects us to you, Father, we pray. Amen.